0: Alright, so where we left things last week was Samuel had walked away from Saul, Saul grabbed his robes, his robe tore, and Samuel turns and looks at Saul and says, just as you torn this robe, God's going to tear this kingdom out of your hand. I stopped there on purpose, because I wanted us to see this morning what happens next. So, the next thing that happens is, remember Saul had kept Agag alive, the king of the Amalekites. And so Samuel says, bring Agag to me. So Saul had refused to do what God had told him to do. And so Samuel is ready to do it. So Agag is not even a little bit worried because he thinks that everything's gone well, everything's gone just exactly the way that he wants it to. And so Agag comes, comes bebopping up and it says, Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death, death is past. And Samuel said to him, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childish among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord. I'm not just using hyperbole, it says he hacked him to pieces. So Agag is done. Samuel agreed to do what Samuel was able to do what Saul had refused to do. Now, why this is really important for the rest of the story is at that moment, Saul and Samuel's disagreement, where Samuel had already told him in the last chapter, God's done with you. You refuse to obey God, you you want to go your own way, you want to do whatever you want to do, God's done with you. Now went from being a private conversation between Saul and Samuel to being very public this king of another nation that Saul had had not killed so that he could parade him around and say, I'm the man. All of a sudden, Samuel had, again to the text, hacked to pieces in front of God and everybody. There was no doubt at this moment that Samuel and Saul were sideways. That bridge was burned. So Samuel leaves, and the way the text says that Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went to his house and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So, that's where we find them, where Samuel is going his way, Saul is going his way, Saul is sulking, he's angry, he's upset. He, he, remember Samuel said to Saul, you think you're little and God has tried to make you king? My own experience has been people that don't think very much of themselves. Now, I'm not talking about humility. See, the difference between humility and a person that doesn't think much of themselves is that a person who's humble doesn't think of themselves. Do you see the difference? If I'm sitting around thinking about how I'm not good enough to do this or not good enough to do that or not good I'm still thinking about myself. The enemy attacks us in one of two ways. You either think you're better than you are or you don't think you're good as you are. Either way, you're thinking about yourself and you're worshiping at the altar of I. So Saul was constantly trying to prove himself, which is why he was willing to disobey God even though his commands were clear because he didn't think very much of himself. So here Samuel is back in his hometown. Saul is in his hometown. God comes to Samuel, says, arise, quit studying on Saul and go to Bethlehem. I've got another king. And so Samuel goes to Bethlehem. Now, when he gets to Bethlehem, the, the leaders, the elders in Bethlehem, are upset that Samuel's shown up because Samuel and Saul are all sideways. They don't want to get pulled into this power struggle. So Samuel, knowing that this had happened, had already told the Lord when the Lord said for you to go to Bethlehem, hey, 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 what, Saul's going to kill me if he catches me out. And so God said, well, go and do a sacrifice, and that way you'll have an excuse to be there. So Samuel tells the Bethlehemites, hey, I'm here to do a sacrifice, and he gets Jesse to call his sons. He meets with Jesse. Um, Now, we know who Jesse is because we have this whole story about Ruth. And Ruth is Jesse's grandmother. So you see how God is already preparing, how God is already working in this family. And so Samuel goes to Jesse, call your boys up. So all the, the guys start come, come walking up. Now, he, the first son comes up and Saul look, uh, Samuel looks at him and thinks, oh, this guy's the guy, he is the man. He's good looking, he's big, and God says to the text that we just read, don't look at the appearance or the height of his stature because I've rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. So then Jesse calls his next oldest son, Abinadab, and made him pass before Samuel. And the Lord did not call him. And then Jesse calls his next son, Shammah, and he passed by. And they go through all of Jesse's sons this way until there are no more sons. And Samuel's sitting there going, I don't know what's going on. And so he asked Jesse, is this it? Is this all the sons you got? And Jesse said, well, we got one more son, but he's out shepherding. Now I got to do a little bit of cultural correction here, and and let me just—we when we hear the word shepherd, we think glamorous that this is a cool job because the Bible says that Jesus is the great shepherd, right? So that that ascribes my job title, uh, according to the New Testament, is shepherd. We think that that's a great job. From my experience uh, living overseas, I will say that I've been exposed to a lot of actual shepherds, and most of the time. When you see somebody out being a shepherd or a cowperd, which is a person that shepherds cows, um, and, or a goddard, which is a person that shepherds goats, then uh, typically that person is either really young, like if they lived in America, they would be in kindergarten young, little bitty kid with a stick, running around smacking cows on the butt, making them do what they're supposed to do, or uh, really, really old, one or the other. It's someone who can't work because they're either really young or really old. I remember really well one time I, was, uh, I had gone on a hiking trip and we were out in the middle of nowhere in this big yila, which is a, a, a valley. And the way that it would work is, is the, 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 there were shepherds, goddards, and cowpers and they would bring the critters through to eat at different times because a sheep eats all the way down to the roots. A cow eats the tops off and I, I really don't know what goats do. They, they just they get on top of your car. Um, and so I, I don't know. Uh, so, <clears throat> I, I was I had gotten up one morning about five o'clock. I had a a group from, uh, I want to say. I don't remember where they're from. They were from some college, and I had gotten up, and I would always carry bacon grease with me to to cook with because bacon grease doesn't have to be refrigerated, and so it was. Five o'clock in the morning, five thirty, and I started a little fire, and I had a had a camp skillet that I would use, and I put that out, and I got the bacon grease, and I was gonna cook some eggs and everything for my group, and a shepherd comes up. I, I, you can hear the ding, 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 ding from the the uh, bells that they have around their critters, and and here he comes walking up because the smell of that bacon grease had just filled that valley, and he came up and said, "What, what you what you eating there, buddy?" and uh, and and. Uh, this was this, this old wizened man who looked like he was like a thousand years old. And, and I said, I'm so sorry, this, this food is not halal, you can't, it's, it's, it's pig. And he said, um, well, is it village meat? Which is kind of a way that a lot of Muslims would sidestep eating pork. Because if it was boar, village meat, then they, they could eat it for some reason. You know, we do the same thing. It's just a glass of wine. We'll just keep it on the down low, no and one not let any of the other deacons see it. Um, <laughs> I, I'm sure you've all heard the joke. You, can, you have to invite more than one Baptist to your party because if you only invite one, he'll drink all your beer. Um, anyway, wow, I've gotten off on a sidetrack. Um, so uh, anyway, I'm so I'm like, he's like, well, is that village meat? Why, you know what? It was it, I bought it at the 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 bacon at the PX, so it was it was like Hickory Farms or something, and so I'm like. Um, I don't know. And he goes, good enough for me. Why don't you give me some of that? (laughs) So, uh, anyway, I I hope it wasn't Ramadan because I messed him up bad. Uh, Regardless, the whole point of that is, is shepherds normally are the people who can't do anything else. If you are uh, old enough to be able to work in the field, you're going to work in the field. A shepherd's going to be a little bitty boy or a really old guy. And so when, when Jesse says to Samuel, yeah, we've got David, but he's out shepherding what he's saying is is he's not worth anything he's just a little kid you don't want to fool with him is what we're being told so Samuel knowing that God has told him that one of Jesse's sons is going to be the next king and knowing that um, he's already looked at all the other ones says, bring him we're not going to sit down until he gets here so of course you we've already read where David comes up and there's a description here of David it says that David was, had pretty eyes. He had good-looking eyes. I, I don't even know what that means. Um, but he had good-looking eyes, and it says that he was ruddy. Now, I do know that the word ruddy in the Hebrew comes from a word that means red. So some people think that the text saying that he was ruddy means that he was a redhead. Uh, some people think that the word ruddy means that he was somebody who was out in the sun all the time. If you've ever seen a roofer, they always have kind of that red tint to them because they're in the sun all the time, they're always burnt. That's one of the things, if I'm in the 7-Eleven, I can look at a guy in front of me and I go, that guy's a roofer because of the way, way that they look. And it's just, just like a painter. If you ever see a painter, he's going to be drunk. And you're going to go, oh, that guy's a painter. And I don't know why that is, that's just always the case. Um, and we could go on and on. There are things that I've heard the exact same stuff said about preachers, but we won't repeat that. <laughs> okay, so we know that David was, was ruddy. We're not, not sure what that means. He's a little kid. He's a young kid. And God says, that's my man. And so in front of Jesse, in front of his brothers, he's anointed as king. But where does he go after that? Just... <laughs> it's funny to me uh, that it seems like God loves to do that to tell somebody here's what you're going to be here's your position now go back to work and if you think about it as I was praying over this text isn't that kind of the case with all believers you love to read the book of Ephesians because it says you are seated in the heavenly places you Have the keys of the kingdom. You are God's chosen one. Now get to work. Get down in the dirt and work. And so here David just goes back to his normal life. Now, it says in the text that after he was anointed in the midst of his brothers, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now Saul's servant said to him, Behold, a harmful spirit of God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command our servants who are before you to seek out a man who's skillful in playing the lyre." And so they need somebody who can come and play, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence that the Lord is with. And so they knew that David was just such a man. And so Jesse sent for David. David. Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and the skin of wine and a young goat and sent to David his son. And David came and entered his servant. And Saul loved David greatly. And David was his armor bearer. And so here, this shepherd, this little boy who has grown up in the woods, who is a neck, all of a sudden, because of God's providence, finds himself serving the king so he can learn how to best serve God in that role later in his life. Isn't it neat how God takes somebody and then begins equipping them for what he's got for them? God always does that. He doesn't just hang us out there. He calls us for things that we can't do, and then he prepares us and equips us. Now, as I've studied this text... um, I think three times in my ministry I've had someone come to me and say this has happened to me. What we read about Saul has happened to me. That there was a time in my life, whether it was camp, one of the people who came and talked to me, it was, they remember experience when they were teenagers and they were at camp. And they said every song, it was like we were knocking on heaven's door. And I just felt God's presence just overwhelming me at that time. And now I'm struggling with addiction, I've been divorced, and the guy I'm living with is not, I'm not married to, I want that back. I want that again. And they read this text and they say, God's done this to me. God's taken his spirit from me and given me an evil spirit. Well, so I want us to dig a little bit into the possibilities of that. And so, if you want to turn to me, you can. If you don't, I'm, I'm going to want to look at Romans chapter 8. One of my favorite, favorite books of the Bible. And I'm going to start with verse 12. And I, let me just read 12 through 17 and then we'll, we'll take it apart a little bit. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be also glorified with him. Now here's a concept laid out in Romans chapter 8, that we don't, we don't talk a lot about the church, in the church today, and that's the idea of killing our flesh. The text says very clearly that you're adopted sons. It's kind of like what we were just talking about. You are heirs to the kingdom. The God that created the universe has looked down at you and applied his finished work on the cross to your heart the moment you got saved. You are seated in the heavenlies. You can boldly approach the throne of grace. You have access to redemption that the angels long to know more about. And yet often we wallow. We don't experience that kind of life at all. And we don't understand why. We read the stories in the Bible and we say, What is going on? I want to live like this. And I think if we look at the text, we come back to the idea that no, you don't. Because you're not willing to do what it takes to live that kind of a life. Because what the text says that we're to be doing, it says, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If your life is consumed by everything that's going on today, if your life is consumed by what's happening in this world, you can't expect an anointing from the Holy Spirit that's otherworldly. If everything that you do is focused on what's happening here today, you're not about killing your flesh. Your life is about your flesh. Ann and I were uh, talking last night about a, a concept. Um, there's, a, there's a book that's written. If you ever get the opportunity to read it, it's a good one. It's called When Helping Hurts. And the premise is that oftentimes Christians do things that don't, don't actually help the problem. But they do them because it makes them feel better. They do something that other people can see them doing, they do something that maybe is doing a penance of it, but it makes them feel better. Like, I've done something. I'm the great white hope. I've fixed this problem. I've, I've done my part. And you see, Satan doesn't attack the church normally by trying to get us to do things that are bad. The devil's not going to try to come in through our leadership and through, through other people and try to convince this church to open a bar. The devil's not going to do that. The devil's smarter than that. He's not going to try to get us to do something that's bad. What he's going to try to do is get us to do stuff that's good so that we don't have time to do what we're told to do. And what we're commanded to do is make disciples. What we're commanded to do is tell other people about the love of Jesus. But see, if we're running around doing a bunch of good stuff, then we sacrifice what God's commanded us to do on the altar of good stuff. And then we can say, see, we did good stuff. And so in our spiritual walk, it's the same thing. If I'm focused all the time on worldly things that are good things, but I'm not spending any time reading God's Word. If I spend all my time reading little devotional gods, but I never open this book, you're wasting your time. I spend all my time talking about prayer, but I never actually talk to the creator. I'm wasting my time. And don't we do that so often? I've been to prayer meetings that literally, the entire hour long service, nobody prayed. I've been to a bunch of them. That at the end of it, somebody go, thank you, Lord, for these requests. I pray that you would deal with them. In Jesus' name, now you got to do what I told you to do. Amen. And what this text is telling us is that if we want to live a life filled with the Spirit, moved by the Spirit, what we have to do is be about killing the things in our life. Wednesday night we were talking about this, okay? The Bible commands us to be filled with the Spirit, which is an awkward thing linguistically to say. I can't command a cup to be filled. Somebody else has to fill it, right? The glass can't go and fill itself. I think two things about that command that we can look at. One is I think we think of a cup and that's, that's hard for us to wrap our brains around what he's talking about. So rather than a cup, think of sails. If a sail is filled, that wind is driving it. It's what it moves it toward. And so the idea of being filled with the Spirit is that's what moves you, that's what motivates you. Not Oprah. <laughs> or it's not the latest article that I read that some preacher wrote. It's that God moves me. And the way that I know what God says, again, is through that book. And the other thing about it, if you want to use the analogy of the cup, is I can't fill a cup if it's already filled, right? And so what I have to do to be able to fill that cup with water is take the other junk out. And we fill our lives with so much junk, don't we? I'm not preaching to y'all, I'm talking to myself. Our lives are filled with so much stuff that we can't Focus on doing what God has called us to do. Again, I'm, I'm borrowing from, from Wednesday night. Um, I, I told them, I, I have people all the time. I had somebody last Sunday. Let me make sure they're not here. Um, <laughs> I don't think they're here. If they're here, I'm not mocking. If you're here, I'm not mocking. That um, said to me, well, I, I, you know, I, I like what, the way you, you preach. I'm, I might start coming here like he was hooking me up, like he was doing me a favor if you came to church here. And I really wanted to say, it's really not going to help me if you come here. If you, you need to be in a church. You need to be under somebody's preaching. You need to be in a body where people can speak into your life. It's not doing me a favor for you to go to church. And we treat God that way, don't we? God... I'm going to hook you up. <laughs> God, I know that you're in heaven really worried about my smoking habit. I'm going to set you up. I'm going to quit. Ha! Now, see, God, how I've helped you out? God, I know that I And we look at any sinner, insert the sin, and we act like if we, we start fighting that sin that we're doing some, God some favor. That like God's going, oh, wow, man, this is going to make my life better. When in reality, God knows that the sin that we let in our life, the world that we let in our life is poison that is killing us. It's keeping us from being spiritually attuned. It's keeping us from experiencing what God has for us. And we're putting this stuff in our life, and God through his word is saying, stop it. Not so that we hook him up, so that we can get what we need. And so this idea of killing the flesh is taking things out. If you are really a believer, the Bible says that you are sealed by the Holy Spirit till the day of redemption. In Christ, you're not going to lose the Holy Spirit. I've noticed uh, in the the weight room with, with the football team and just generally speaking that today these crazy kids with their rock and roll music, that they have headphones all the time. In fact, I, sometimes I think that, that one of my kids, I won't say his name, um, <laughs> that, that that is a constant piece of, of his attire, his headphones. And so it drives me insane to be in the kitchen and go, I, again, I'm not going to say the child's name because I'm going embarrass him, but if I go, Billiam, <laughs> nothing. Billiam, nothing. Son, do you hear me? And I walk in the living room and he's on the couch with headphones on. He couldn't hear anything that I was saying. I, as his father did not disappear at that point. He was filling his ears with something else so that he couldn't hear me. Do you see the analogy? You can't lose the Holy Spirit. The Bible promised us, again, that we're sealed to the day of redemption. That if you are in Christ, if you have called on the name of the Lord to get saved, it's His authority that holds you, not your goodness. That's right. Come on, yeah, good. But that doesn't mean that I can't muffle my life out so that I can't hear what God's doing. And if you're really a Christian, and you aren't in the Word, and you aren't praying and you aren't around other believers, it won't take long for you to die, to wither on the vine, and you're certainly not gonna grow. And the church today is absolutely full up of people who have gotten saved and never grown in their faith. They are, I don't mean this derogatory, but they're literally mentally retarded Christians. They're like babies, but they're adults. And it's not because of bad leadership. It's not because... Well, I won't say that. It may be partially because of bad leadership. What is lacking is that they're not feeding on God's Word. The analogy that's used over and over and over and over in the Bible is that the Bible is the milk or the meat, right? That's the way a kid grows up. The re- when I, my children were little bitty babies, and would have to sit there and feed them, Right? have to spoon feed them. I remember, um, and I hope I don't get in trouble for this, but she was the queen of making crazy faces when she would feed the kids. She would take the spoon, she'd take the, you know, the apricots and ham, those nasty flavors they put together, and she'd get it, and she'd go. <laughs> and she'd put the spoon in, in the baby's mouth and the baby would, would eat it, and she would do that. If she had to feed William that way now, there'd be a problem. <laughs> and yet I'm told all the time by Christians, well, I'm, I've decided to change churches because they're just not feeding me. Really? You don't, you don't know how to feed yourself? I mean, I don't go in to the house and say, I am so hungry. <laughs> now, I'm not negating my responsibility is pr- to prepare and to pray over every sermon and to make sure that I'm providing God's word to you to feed you. But I'm telling you, if that's all you're getting, you're going to starve to death. You've got to be in God's word for yourself. Last week, as I taught the same idea from a different perspective, one of the terms that I forgot to throw out there was the idea of a priesthood of believers. You are your own priest. You will stand in front of God alone. I won't be there. Your wife won't be there. Your mama won't be there. You are responsible for your spiritual growth. You are responsible to make sure that in your walk with Christ that you are praying, that you are feasting on God's word, that you are involved with other believers. And those are always the three things that if if anybody comes to me and they're suffering from spiritual depression, I always say one of three things is missing. I know they are. Either you're not in the word, either you're not praying, or you're not around other believers. If any one of those three things is missing, everything falls apart. And so God's not going to take his spirit from you. Because you are in Christ, you're sealed. That's not going to happen. But that doesn't mean that your spiritual walk can't go off the rails. And this idea in Romans chapter 8 you starts out, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. He's not talking about your lostness in this text. He's talking about whether or not you in your spiritual walk live. Live. And so if you really are saying to me, if you really believe, I want that excitement that I used to have. I want to be on fire for Jesus. I want to experience an act kind of excitement. I want us to be a flame for Jesus. Then I'm going to tell you what you need to do is feast deeply on that word and then lay out on your face and talk to your God. Anybody can do that. And that is exactly why there's many the little... 75, 80 year old lady who is so much more in tune with God than I'll ever be, and she's never had a lick of training in her life, and the reason for that is because she's communed daily with her Savior. And you can do that too. And so, don't read this text in Samuel and think, "Well, God, God's going to take His Holy Spirit from me." No, He's not. That's that's a different er dispensation. mm, That's a different time. Now, in Christ, you are sealed. And so, if you've lost that loving feeling, I didn't mean to say that, but... <laughs> <laughs> now the song's in my head, and it's in all your heads, and it's your fault. Um, if you've lost that loving feeling... Whoa, that love. <laughs> okay, I'm completely off the rails now. So, Chad, you, I, I, I'm not going to land this one, because I... <laughs> I'm circling the airport at this point. I got no return. Okay, so if you're in that particular position, God hadn't moved. You have. The final thing that, I, that comes up about this text that I, I, I want to close, and I know it's a little backwards, is people go, why Saul? Okay, if God from the time of Ruth was preparing this family for the kingship, Why did God have this Saul thing? I mean, we can see from Judah's prophecy when hands are laid on Judah that the king's coming from Judah and Saul's from Benjamin. Why did God, did God make a mistake? Was God in heaven going, oh, Saul, man. Mm. I want us to think of a couple of things that this text teaches us that we need to know. One of them I need to know really big time. It doesn't matter what your title is. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you're a Sunday school teacher. It doesn't matter if you sing in the choir. It doesn't matter if you play the piano. No matter what you do. Your character and obedience to God on a daily, boring, day in, day out means more to God than your title. God was willing to say to the king of Israel, nope, if you're not going to obey me, you're done. And yet how arrogant we are to think, well, I can do whatever I want to. And Let me rephrase that. How arrogant I am to think I can sin with impunity and think, well, I'm a pastor. Or you to think, Well, God's going to forgive me. God cares more about his reputation than he does about ours. And I've seen many the beautiful sanctuary that's empty because those people walked away from what God had called them to do. And we see that lesson in stereo in the story of Saul. The other thing that we see in the story with Saul, if we compare Saul with David in the way that they dealt with their sin, it's a warning for us as we deal with our sin. Because everybody's going to sin. We are all going to fail. In the text that we read in Romans, it was very clear that Paul expects you to fail Romans chapter 7, the chapter just before it, is that text that I'm so glad in the Bible. The thing that I would do, I don't. The thing that I don't want to do, I do. Have any of you ever lived there? Man, I, I got guaranteed parking. When Saul confessed his sin, he was always pointing a finger of blame at somebody else. It was the people. The people made me do it. He was always looking at the outward sins where David dealt with the sin of the heart. And we come to a time of invitation. I want to close us by reading Psalm 51. If I can find Psalm in this Bible. Have mercy on me, O God according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my sins. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my transgressions. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I was born in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. But you delight in truth in the inward parts. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be water than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Father God, I pray that as we deal with our sin, that we would do so not looking at what this person did or that person did, but God, we would call out to you and say, against you have I sinned and done this great wickedness in your sight. That we would see sin for what it is. And they would cry out to you for mercy. God, I pray that you would create in us at North Glencoe a repentant heart that looks to you. In Jesus' name, amen.